Thus have I heard, two and a half thousand years ago, in northern India, there lived a young man of the Gotama clan. We don't actually know his first name. He was later called Siddhartha Gotama, but Siddhartha, Siddhartha only shows up in the uh, literature several hundred years after his death, and it means the accomplished one. And most babies don't get named the accomplished one because, well, most babies haven't accomplished anything. Nonetheless, we can call him Siddhartha Gotama, since that's how he's known today. When he was 29 years old, he left his home in the area of the foothills of the Himalayas and headed south to seek his spiritual fortune. Now, India at that time was, well, literally crawling with spiritual seekers. The economy, the agricultural prowess, had reached such a state that it was possible to support more people than those who were doing the farming. There was an excess surplus of food. And so one of the things that happened was that it was possible to be a full-time spiritual seeker and basically gain the food you needed by begging for it. Of course, one of the other things was that uh, it led to standing armies. You win some, you lose some. Oh, well. Anyhow, Siddhartha Gautama headed south and east to the land of the Kalamas. And there he studied with a apparently well-known teacher named Alara Kalama. And he learned Alara Kalama's teachings and his meditation practice, which culminated in what we today call the seventh jhana, the realm of nothingness. Alara Kalama was quite impressed with Siddhartha Gotama. He said, you know my teachings as well as I do. You know my practice as well as I do. Come, let us lead this group together. But Siddhartha Gotama had left home seeking, well, an answer to what to do about dukkha, old age, sickness, and death. And all he found was seven jhanas. And when he came out of them, yeah, the dukkha was still around. So he left. And he traveled further east to the kingdom of Magadha. And there he studied with Udaka Ramaputta, Udaka the son of Rama. And he learned Rama's doctrine and Rama's meditation practice, which culminated in the eighth jhana. And eventually, Ramaputta said, you know Rama's doctrine as well as he did. You know his practices as well as he did. Come, you should lead this Sangha. But Siddhartha Gautama uh, still hadn't found out what to do about old age, sickness, and death. All he'd gotten was the eighth jhana. So once again, he left. And then he began practicing austerities. One of the practices that he undertook was called the breathless meditation. And basically it consisted of him holding his breath for as long as he could. And what he discovered 
was if you spend hours on end holding your breath for as long as you could. It leads to terrible headaches, but no information on what to do about old age, sickness, and death. So then he switched to practicing, well, eating very little food. In fact, at one point he was down to eating one grain of rice a day. And what he discovered was that if you eat one grain of rice a day, you get really skinny and weak and have a tendency to fall over. Six years after he left home, he realized that this wasn't working either. He had taken austerities well to the maximum level it was possible to take them and still survive, and yet he was no closer to his original quest than when he set out. He began thinking, there's got to be another way, and he began trying to consider what could he possibly do. He remembered an incident from his childhood when his father was working. Traditionally, he said his father was plowing. And Siddhartha Gautama was sitting under a rose apple tree, and he fell into what we call the first jhana. And now, some quarter of a century later, he's remembering this incident, and he thinks, why should I be afraid of the pleasures of the jhanas? Those pleasures are not associated with sensuality. These are pure pleasures. I wonder if these jhanas could be the way to awakening. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought these jhanas are the way to awakening. But he also realized in his horribly emaciated state that uh, he didn't have the energy for jhana practice. So he began eating solid food. Now at that time, there were five other ascetics practicing with him. And when they saw that Siddhartha Gautama had returned to eating solid food, they thought he'd given up the spiritual life. And so they left in disgust. But Siddhartha Gautama hadn't given up the spiritual life. He was just trying to find something that worked. He found a good place by the Nairanjira River near a town where he could go on alms round. And there was a large tree there that he could sit under and practice meditation. And so after some time, we don't know how long, he regained his strength and began practicing the jhanas again. And on the full moon in May, which, as it turns out, was his birthday, he sat down under this tree with the determination he was either going to figure it out or the flesh would rot from his bones. He started out by stepping through the jhanas, first, second, third, fourth. And then with a mind concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to remembering past lives. That was the first watch of the night. And then in the second watch of the night, with his mind still concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he directed and inclined it to seeing beings passing away 
and re-arising according to their karma. And in the third watch of the night, with a mind still concentrated, clear, sharp, bright, malleable, wieldy, and given to imperturbability, he apparently contemplated dependent origination and came up with what we now call the Four Noble Truths. And when the sun came up the next morning, Siddhartha Gotama was a changed man. He was awake. He was the Buddha. It says he spent the next week just enjoying the bliss of awakening. And then he began wondering, could he teach this to others? What he'd found was really subtle. It is deep, difficult to see and understand. Appeasing and exalted, it cannot be realized logically. It is clever and is to be experienced by the wise. But this generation delights in its lifestyle, takes delight in its lifestyle, rejoices in its lifestyle. For a generation delighting in, excited by, and enjoying its lifestyle, it's hard to see this, that conditionality dependent origination. Ijapatayata And this too is hard to see, the calming of all fabrications, the relinquishing of all the accoutrements of one's lifestyle, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Basically, the Buddha decided, yeah, these people, they're too interested in their lifestyle. They're not going to be able to understand what I've taught. It is said that one of the highest of the Brahma gods, Shahampati, realizing that the Buddha was disinclined to teach, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, disappeared from the highest of the heavens and reappeared on earth before the Buddha. Got down on one knee, put his hands together in reverential salutation, and begged the Buddha to teach for the benefit of gods and humans. He said, there are some with little dust in their eyes. They will be able to understand what you have come to understand. And then the Buddha looked around with the eye of a Buddha, and he could see many people with much dust in their eyes, and he could see some with moderate amounts of dust, and he could see a few with little dust in their eyes. And he thought maybe he could try and teach those who had little dust in their eyes. And that Chahapati, upon realizing that he had encouraged the Buddha to begin teaching, as quickly as a strong man could extend his arm or draw it back, disappeared from earth and reappeared in the highest of the heavens. The Buddha thought, now who should I teach? Who do I know who has little dust in their eyes? He thought about his first teacher, Alara Kalama. He had little dust in his eyes, but he had recently died. Then the Buddha thought about his second teacher, Udaka Ramaputta. He had little dust in his eyes, but he too had recently died. Then the Buddha thought about his five friends with whom he had been 
uh, practicing austerities. They thought, perhaps they have little dust in their eyes. Maybe, maybe I should try and teach them. And so with the eye of a Buddha, he was able to look around and see that his five friends had headed west to the great city of Varanasi and were now staying at the Deer Park just outside the village of Sarnath. And so he set out to head in that direction. Along the way, he encountered an Ajivaka. Now, the Ajivakas were another spiritual tradition, another religion at the time of the Buddha. And this Ajivaka was quite struck by the Buddha's appearance. He said, excuse me, your appearance is different from other men. You have a very clear countenance. Who is your teacher? The Buddha said, I have no teacher. I'm awake. And the Ajivaka said, well, good for you, and passed by on the other side. Uh, the Buddha's first attempt at teaching didn't go over real well. But he persisted, and he headed on further west, and eventually came to the deer park outside the village of Sarnath. And his five friends saw him coming in the distance. And they said, oh, look, it's Sid the Slacker. Well, we'll let him sit with us, but we won't show him any respect. But when he came near, one of them got up and took his robe and bowl, and another prepared water for him to wash his feet, and a third prepared a seat for him to sit on. And after he had sat down and washed his feet, he said, Well, guys, I figured it out. They laughed. They said, You didn't figure nothing out. We saw you. You were eaten. You gave up the spiritual path. He said, No, no, I didn't give up the spiritual path, but I did figure it out. And they said, You couldn't have. You returned to the life of luxury. He said, No, no, I was just trying to find something that works. And look, guys, have I ever told you before that I figured it out? Well, they had to admit he'd never claimed to figure it out before, so they decided to listen. And he taught them what we now call the first sermon, the Dhamma Chakra Pavadna Sutta, the discourse setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. That sutta is about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Actually, Four Noble Truths is literally correct, but it may be could be better translated as the four ennobling truths, in the sense that if you come to deeply understand these four things, that will ennoble you, make you an awakened one. The first of these ennobling truths is Dukkha Happens. They used to put that on bumper stickers in America. Of course, they used a four-letter Anglo-Saxon word rather than a poly word, but it's the same idea. Stuff goes wrong. The word dukkha usually gets translated as suffering, though you sometimes see it as stress or unpleasantness. It's about the things that are less than perfect in life. My favorite translation of dukkha is bummer. Uh, yeah, something goes wrong, it's a bummer. Because dukkha has a very broad range. Suffering is over here at the edge. Your friend dies, that's dukkha, and it's suffering. 
You lose your sunglasses at the beach. That's not suffering, but it's still dukkha. And everything in between is dukkha as well. So I think Bummer probably better captures it, particularly because a bummer is something that bums you out. Okay, you lose your sunglasses at the beach and you think, oh, I hope whoever finds them needed them more than I do. And you're not bummed out. It's not the experience that's the dukkha. It's your reaction to the experience. You got bummed out. You experienced dukkha. Okay, but as good a translation as bummer is, I'm going to leave it untranslated because even bummer has its uh, limitations. So, first noble truth, bummers happen. Uh, modern science points out the same thing. They don't use bummer, they use entropy. Entropy is a tendency of things to go from a state of order to disorder. You might have noticed this happen. You clean up your house, everything is nice and orderly, Three weeks later, it's a mess again. Who, who did that? It wasn't you. You don't make messes, right? But it, stuff got messed up. Or you get a new car. And it has that new car smell. Yeah, but you got to put oil in it and you get it tuned up and change the filters and it gets scratched and the new car smell is gone. And 10 years later, yeah, it changed. It moved towards disorder. This is what happens. You can see this happening in the mirror, right? I mean, think about it. Probably the best you're going to look for the rest of your life is what you'll see in the mirror today. You know, it just goes downhill. This is entropy. And the universe tends towards entropy. This is fairly easy to understand. Suppose you had a copy of War and Peace, a loose-leaf notebook copy, and you open the notebook and you take out all 1,000 pages and you throw them up in the air and they come fluttering down. And then you shuffle them all back together so it looks nice and orderly. What are the odds that every page is right side up and in exactly the right order? I mean, I have a degree in math, and I never managed to calculate the odds against that. There are so many ways for it to be out of order, and only one way for it to be in order. When something changes, there are many more ways for it to change to be more disorderly than for it to be as orderly or even more orderly. This is entropy. This is how the world works. And if we are opposed to this manifestation of disorder, then we find that's dukkha. Maybe we suffer, maybe we get bummed out. Okay? That's, that's what the first noble truth is about. The second noble truth, <clears throat> dukkha arises dependent on craving. Sometimes you hear it said that craving causes dukkha. The Buddha never said that. The Buddha wasn't talking about causes. He talked about dependencies. The craving is a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha. 
this looking at the world in terms of necessary conditions was a brilliant move on the Buddha's part. Most spiritual traditions back then and even today want to explain how the world works, how it came to be, and things happen because of, and the Buddha was like, okay, we got a problem, it's dukkha, first noble truth. Can I find a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha? And can I prevent the necessary condition from arising? And if it's indeed a necessary condition, then the dukkha won't arise. This was a brilliant move on his part. He didn't try and figure out the ontology of anything or the metaphysics of life. He's like, we got a problem. Let's see if we can find a way to prevent the problem from occurring. So you know about necessary conditions? A necessary condition for the light to be on is that the light switch be turned on, right? If the light is on and I want it to go off, I don't have to know why the light shines. I don't need to know anything about excited electrons emitting photons or anything like that, right? I just need to find a manipulatable necessary condition, the light switch. Now, the light switch doesn't make the light shine, and it's not the only necessary condition. The power plant's got to be pumping out those electrons, and the wires have to be intact. I could turn off the light by blowing up the power plant or cutting the wires to the house. Uh, there's problems with doing that. But turning off the light switch, that's an easily manipulatable necessary condition, right? One way to avoid dukkha on this earth is don't get born, right? I mean, people who don't get born don't experience dukkha. Unfortunately, that's not a manipulatable necessary condition. All of you already got born. I can tell just by looking at your picture on my computer screen, right? So that's no good. It's still a necessary condition, but... Yeah, you got to find one you can manipulate. And the Buddha found tanha, which we translate as craving. Tanha literally means thirst, but it has a sense of unquenchable thirst. There's another Pali word that also means thirst. But this is the unquenchable thirst. This is the thirst you have when you're lost in the desert and don't have any water. You've got to get it. Buddha talked about three types of craving. There's kamatanha, or craving for sense pleasures. That's what we do when we want to see nice things, hear nice things, smell nice smells, taste nice food, touch nice textures, have nice mental experiences. The senses. So we're looking for sense pleasure. We're craving sense pleasure. That craving is a setup for dukkha. There's also bhava tanha and vibhava tanha. Bhava is becoming. Sometimes you see it translated as existence, but I think a better translation is becoming. So craving for becoming and craving for not becoming. Craving for becoming could be in this life or a future life. So in this life, you're craving to become, what, rich and famous? 
or whatever you're craving to become, right? And in a future life, you're craving to become reborn in a family who has a Mercedes Benz, or you're craving to become a Deva, or whatever you're craving for your next life. These are bhavatanha. They're a setup for dukkha. The craving for becoming, for the Brahmins, which was the dominant spiritual tradition at the time of the Buddha, was craving for becoming in union with Brahma, right? And if you weren't quite good enough to make that, you at least wanted to, you know, have a better life next time. And that craving is a setup for dukkha. The Jains, which was another spiritual tradition at the time of the Buddha, they had vibhavatanha. They were craving to not be reborn. They were basically trying not to do any action because if you did an action, it would have consequences that had to be dealt with. And if you did too many actions, that guarantee you were going to be reborn. And yeah, you didn't want to do any action. The highest thing of the Jains was to sit there and starve to death. Uh, not recommended. But there could be craving for not becoming in this life. I mean, none of us want to become ill with COVID, right? That's just a very common craving these days. Okay, so craving for sense pleasures, craving for becoming, craving for not becoming. And they're all a setup for dukkha. But luckily, the Buddha continued because with necessary conditions, if you can t prevent the necessary condition from happening, the resultant doesn't happen. And so the Buddha says, with the end of the craving, it's the end of the dukkha. Now, uh, I tell you all, don't crave. Are you going to be able to stop craving? No, you're still going to crave. I mean, if the Buddha himself was on this call and he told you to stop craving, you'd still go around and crave. You have to learn to stop craving. Okay? And the way to learn to stop craving, well, that's the ennobling eightfold path. That's the fourth of these ennobling truths. The path of practice that leads to the end of dukkha. Or we could say the path of practice that enables one to stop craving. These are eight practices to undertake. They're given in linear order because it was an oral tradition and they had to come out one after the other. But it's not that you do the first one until it's perfected and then you can move on to the second. You need to undertake all eight of these practices simultaneously. It's like an eight-lane road and you got to drive in all eight lanes at the same time. The first of these is usually translated as samaditi, right view. Ditti means view. Sama, sama perhaps more appropriately could be translated as appropriate. So samaditi, appropriate view. Uh, I believe that we get the word summit in English from the same origin the highest, the one that's going to be the best, so the best view, the appropriate view. And what is right view, appropriate view? Well, 
the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist teachings were preserved in the tradition as oral literature. And there are five books, the long, the middle, the connected, the numerical, and the miscellaneous discourses. This collection of miscellaneous discourses, the Kudukha Nikaya, contains a collection within it called the Sutta Nipata, the little Sutta collection. And that's a collection of, uh, I believe, about 75 discourses from the Buddha. And they're in five books within this larger collection. Book four of that collection appears to be very early material. Early in the sense that the words that are used are, well, the poly that's used there is what you would find earlier rather than later, just like you can tell the difference between Shakespeare English and 21st century English, right? So the scholars can say that book four seems to use words in a way that were used in the Pali language earlier rather than later. Furthermore, book four pictures the Buddha as a solitary wanderer without followers and monasteries and so forth. And that, from what we know about the Buddha, was how his life was early in his ministry. He didn't start getting followers until about three years after his awakening, where people were following him around and monasteries and all that. So this is very early material from any standpoint of early. And the overriding theme, or one of the overriding themes of Book 4 of the Sutta Nipata is not holding to fixed views. This is really important on the spiritual path. If you have a fixed view, well, the fact that it's fixed it means it's going to be hard for you to change your mind. If you're not fully awakened right now, you're going to have to change your mind. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have any views. It's that all the views are held very lightly. Okay? Every view is provisional until something better comes along. Right? So this is one aspect of right view. Keep an open mind. An open mind is probably the most important thing to bring on the spiritual path. I mean, if you have a very closed mind, yeah, you're not going to learn anything. You need to be available for a new way of looking at the world. In other suttas, we find that right view is defined as the four ennobling truths. So we start out talking about the four ennobling truths. We get to the fourth one, that's the ennobling eightfold path. We get to the first one, and it's right view, and it's defined as the four noble truths. The Buddha's teaching is holographic. You dig down deeply enough into anything and you find the whole thing. It's presented in linear order because, well, it was an oral tradition and one word comes out after another. But when you're studying what the Buddha had to say, you should take the broader picture and realize there are far more implications than what's right there on the surface. Now, in other suttas, we find right view defined as dependent origination, paticca samapada. Is this a contradiction? Well, no. Uh, as I came up put it, the Four Noble Truths are dependent origination in telegram style. I guess today we have to say in Twitter style. A brief summary of the key points. 
we will be taking a deep look at dependent origination towards the end of the course. But that's really the, the heart of right view, looking at the world from a dependent origination standpoint, looking at the world and realizing that everything arises dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. It's a vastly interconnected world. The second is right intention. Right intention is often described as having three characteristics. Intentions of renunciation, intentions of non-ill will, intentions of harmlessness. Renunciation. That's a loaded word. Most people, when they hear renunciation, have a reaction, something like, get your hands off my stuff. Which, yeah, we have a lot of stuff. Uh, it's your birthday. Somebody gives you some new stuff. Where are you going to put your new stuff? Your closets are full. Your walls are covered with artwork. What are you going to do with this new stuff? We are inundated with stuff. You get something new and you don't know where to put it. Your closets, there's not even a spare hanger in there. What are you going to do with your stuff? You you got so much stuff, you can't get your car in your garage. You got so much stuff, you had to go down the street and rent another room for the extra stuff. We are inundated with stuff. Now, it's true, as lay people, we need more than three robes in a bowl, Okay. But we don't need to do what the culture says. The culture says, basically, you got a problem? Buy this stuff on sale, right? The spiritual path is not about acquiring anything. It's about letting go. I read a book one time called Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand. It's a, it's a Tibetan book. It's big old thick thing. It was it was interesting, but the best part is the title because we do have liberation in the palm of our hand. You can see that. Make a fist. Come on, everybody make a fist. Hold it up in front of your face. I want to see a fist in front of your face. Come on. All right. Now, you want to see liberation? Look at the palm of your hand. That's how you get there. Right? It's all about this. It's not about that. Okay? Now, letting go is not the same as throwing away. Right? Keep that part in mind. It's not that you have to get rid of everything. It's that you have to not be attached to things. And because we live on a planet that is, well is limited in its resources and we're using them much faster than they're available, uh, is going to be in big trouble. So part of renunciation is realizing that you need to live lightly so that others can just live, right? You don't need a new car every year. You don't need the latest fashions every year. You don't need the you don't need the new iPhone. It's not really much better than the last iPhone, especially if your last iPhone still works. Right? But that's not the culture we live in. The culture we live in is buy. It's a consumer culture. 
Yeah, we're consuming the whole planet. This does not work long term. <clears throat> we need to recognize the limit of, well, the world, the planet. And we need to not get caught up in the culture that says bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye, buying. Right? Just don't go there. Let go. They say that you should really have a green car, you know, one that pollutes the planet less than others. Probably the greenest car that you can get is the one you already own. Because making a car, yeah, that throws a lot of carbon dioxide into the air. Drive your car as long as it's usable, right? And then go buy an electric one, okay? But we have to be aware of the limitations of the planet on which we are all living. And then the other two parts of right intention, uh, non-ill will and harmlessness, or we could say love and compassion. What would it be like if everybody on the planet had these three as their intention, as their motivation? They're, they're letting go as opposed to acquiring, and they're operating out of love and compassion. Wow, that's a place I'd like to live. That would be very, very nice. What if everybody did that? Well, everybody's not going to do that if you're not doing it, right? So you might as well start practicing. That's the only way we're going to get everybody to do that. And it turns out it makes it a lot easier for you in your life. These first two are often referred to as the uh, wisdom aspects of the Ennobling Eightfold Path. The next three are the sila, or morality aspects. And the first of these is right speech. Right speech primarily is about yeah, telling the truth, not using wrong speech, not using false speech. This doesn't mean you should wield the truth as a weapon. The Buddha said, if you know something that's not true and not useful, don't say it. If you know something that's not true but is useful, don't say it. If you know something that's not useful but is true, don't say it. If you know something that's both useful and true, Find the right time to say it and say it with a heart full of love. At the time of the Buddha, <clears throat> it was quite acceptable to reply to a question with silence. I think that would be a really good thing to start doing again, especially for our politicians. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, pay attention to what you're saying. It needs to be useful and true and timely. And your attitude needs to be loving when you're saying it. Right speech also covers uh, not using harsh or abusive language. It covers being a peacemaker as rather than causing division. And it's about not engaging in gossip and idle chatter. In some of the suttas, the Buddha talks about unedifying conversations, such as those about kings, ministers, armies, dangers, wars, thieves, food, clothing, drink, beds, garlands, perfume. 
Villages, towns, cities, countries, carriages, relatives, street and well gossip, talk of heroes, talk of the departed, desultory speech, speculations about land and sea, talk about being and non-being. Not much left to talk about. Now, admittedly, this was a list given to monastics as lay people. Yeah, we probably do need to talk about a few other things. But kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangerous wars. That's the six o'clock news, right? You get you have a six o'clock Duca report. You know, you turn on your TV and they give you the six o'clock Duca report. I mean, they call it news, but it's really a Duca report, right? You know, there was Duca in Afghanistan. There was Duca in Ukraine. There was Duca in Africa. There was Duca right here in our hometown. We'll be back with the weather. Uh, yeah, it's good to know what's going on. Uh, television's not the best way to find out what's going on because, well, at least in America, they tell you what's going on so you'll keep tuned in. Uh, you've got the BBC. That's definitely a lot better. But be careful where you get your information about what's going on. Food, clothing, drinks, beds, garlands, perfumes. If you go to a newsstand, how many magazines can you find on each of those? Villages, towns, cities, countries. What's that? Condé Nast Traveler, National Geographic. It's good to know what's going on in the world. Just don't get lost in doing that. Heroes. So what's that? Uh, cricket stars, football stars, pop stars, celebrities. In America, we have celebrities who are famous for just being famous. I mean, how ridiculous can you get? There are magazines full of people. People you... Pff, I mean, why do you care about this person? Because they're in a magazine. Uh, it's ridiculous. Street and well gossip. I think today that's water cooler gossip. Sometimes when you encounter someone who's not practicing the spiritual path, yeah, then you need to talk about these topics. When I was a computer programmer, uh, I had some friends that, yeah, were totally into sports. Hey, yeah, I can talk about sports. And so I go see them and we talk about sports. But if ever there was a chance to move the conversation to a higher level, I would try and take it. So if you find yourself engaged in one of these unedifying conversations and you find an opportunity to move it to a higher level, by all means, take that opportunity. You'll be surprised at the interest you may find in people you didn't expect it. The next one on the Eightfold Path is right action. And last night, Matt talked about right action, which is basically keeping the precepts. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't misuse your sexual energy. And as we just spoke, use right speech. Now, the one about uh, intoxicants doesn't show up in the first version of the Noble Eightfold Path. And the reason was probably because the Buddha's talking to guys living on one grain of rice a day. 
I don't think they were drinking beer or smoking pot or anything else, right? So he didn't need this precept until he had lay followers, as it turned out. And then right livelihood. How do you make a living? How do you support yourself? Is the thing you're doing to make a living making the world a better place or a worse place? That's the bottom line. Sometimes it's really obvious. I mean, if you're a medical professional and you're helping people who are in dukkha, then yeah, that's right livelihood. I used to be a computer programmer. I worked for a company that made a database product. That's like a, a filing cabinet, right? Seems pretty benign. But then I look at who our customers were. University of California, California Water Resources Board. Yeah, that's pretty good. General Electric, the Pentagon. Yeah, I'm glad I have a different job now. Right. So, yeah, how are you making a living? Is what you're doing making the world a better place? There's a list of wrong livelihoods, being a thief, being a gambler, selling weapons, being a slave trader. Yeah, these are considered wrong livelihood. I don't think any of you are doing any of that. But just, what are you doing to make a living? Is it making the world a better place? And then the last three in the Ennobling Eightfold Path are the samadhi, the concentration aspects. The first is right effort. As Matt mentioned last night, it's the right amount of effort, not too much effort, not too lazy either. Among Westerners, the major problem is not so much being lazy when they're on retreat, but it's over-efforting. There's the story of Sona. Sona was so delicately raised that he had hair growing on the soles of his feet. And eventually he heard about the Buddha, gained faith, went forth to become a monk. And he's practicing walking meditation. And his feet are bleeding and he just can't do it. And he goes to the Buddha and says, I got to go home. I can't do this. And the Buddha says, Sona, can you play a lute? Yes, venerable sir, I can play a lute. When you tune a lute, do you tighten the strings all the way? No, venerable sir. Do you make them nice and slack? No, venerable sir. Well, what do you do? In the middle. In the middle. Same thing with your effort, Sona. In the middle. Not over-efforting, not too slack. So Sona decided to stick around, and as happens in most of these stories, he eventually became fully awakened. That's what we got to do with our effort. Right effort is sometimes defined as the four great efforts to make an unarisen, unwholesome state not arise. To make an arisen, unwholesome state go away. To make an unarisen, wholesome state arise. And to make an arisen, wholesome state stick around and come to perfection. i give you an example. You're driving down the motorway, and some idiot cuts you off. And the next thing you know, you're screaming four-letter words at your windshield. An unwholesome state has arisen. Anger, hatred, whatever. And you realize that. And you're like, oh, yeah, what's the antidote? Meta, right? May you learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. All right, so you've taken the unwholesome state and made it go away. 
right? And you continue down the motorway, and some other idiot cuts you off, and you're just about to start screaming words at your windshield, and you catch yourself. May you also learn to drive. May you arrive safely at your destination. So you prevented the arising of an unwholesome state. But you also made a wholesome state arise. Doing metta is wholesome, right? That's good. Keep it around and bring it to perfection. May we all arrive safely at our destination. May there be no traffic jams, right? So, yeah, just keep doing the metta as you drive down the freeway. So pay attention to your state of mind. If it's a useful state, encourage it. If it's not useful, See if you can find a useful one. That's right effort. The seventh of the Eightfold Path is right mindfulness. That's usually given as the four establishments of mindfulness, or sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body, this physical body. Mindfulness of Vedana. Vedana is your initial categorization of a sensory input. And there are three possible categories. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Okay? It's sometimes translated as feelings, but that's a terrible translation because feelings has a connotation of emotions. Emotions belong to the third establishment of mindfulness. This is just your initial categorization. The closest English word we have is valence, but unless you have a background in chemistry, you might not be familiar with valence. But it's the positive or negative, or in this case also neutral, reaction to a sensory input or categorization. Uh, and so when the bell rings, the sound of the bell is pleasant. If I had a blackboard and I scraped my fingers down the wall, yeah, that would be unpleasant. Those Pleasant Vedna and unpleasant Vedna. We'll talk more about Vedna. Vedna are really important because basically they run our lives. We run around chasing the pleasant Vedna and running away from the unpleasant Vedna and ignoring the neutral Vedna. Third establishment mindfulness is mindfulness of mind states. What's your state of mind? Happy, sad, confused, concentrated, angry, upset, hungry? What's your state of mind, right? Knowing your state of mind, you can then determine whether it's wholesome or not and whether to encourage it or substitute it with something else. And then the fourth establishment of mindfulness is mindfulness of dharmas. Dharma is an interesting word, uh, different connotations in different circumstances. Uh, in the four establishments of mindfulness, it would be phenomena. But it also means the teachings of the Buddha. And so the fourth establishment is mindfulness of phenomena with respect to the teachings of the Buddha. I think that's the best way to put it. We will go into these in great detail. Matt will outline a bunch of practices associated with each of these in the morning talks, not starting tomorrow, but the day after. And then the eighth on the Eightfold Path is Sama Samadhi, usually translated as right concentration. But as I said, Sama is probably appropriate and Samadhi, indistractability. So appropriate indistractability. 
And what is appropriate indistractability? Secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and remains in the first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. This is appropriate indistractability, or this is right concentration. So the jhanas were basically part of what the Buddha was teaching as the foundation of his teachings. They're one-eighth of the Eightfold Path. They're a very useful practice, assuming that you have some skill in concentration. At the end of that first sermon, the Buddha looks at those five guys, and one of them, Kandanya, got it. He knew, oh, all that arises also ceases. And he attained the first level of awakening called stream entry. The Buddha recognizes that Kadanya got it. And he says, you know, Kadanya, don't you? You know, which in Pali is something like Anya Kadanya. And indeed, Kadanya did know. We owe a great debt of gratitude to Kadanya. Imagine if the Buddha gets to the end of the first sermon and the five guys go, so? The Buddha would have gone, ah, nobody's got little dust in their eyes. He'd have gone back to the Bodhi tree and enjoyed the bliss of enlightenment for the next 45 years. But because Kandanya got it, he knew he could teach it to other people. And so one by one, each of the other guys got it. And then when he knew their minds were well prepared, he taught them the second sermon, the Discourse on Not-Self, and they all became fully awakened. But we'll have to save that for another time.